Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Linda Gray Sexton is a memoirist and novelist whose books include Searching for Mercy Street and Half in Love. As the daughter of legendary poet Anne Sexton, she was immersed as a child in a world of uncertainty, manipulation, and impending loss. When her mother finally took her own life in 1974, after many attempts, it left a legacy of confusion and grief that Linda Sexton has borne with courage and wisdom, despite her own struggles with mental illness. And as her mother's literary executor, Sexton is continually re-immersed in her mother's work and her world. Linda Sexton is currently at work on a new memoir and provides editorial guidance to authors of all types. Well, thank you, Linda Sexton, for joining us on The Story Talks Back to talk about stories and storytelling in your life. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure. Uh, I wanted to just sort of go back to the beginning and think about storytelling and stories in your family. Um, Do you remember as a child that stories were important to you or to your family and the whole atmosphere of growing up? In my family, stories were all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody told stories and as children, we grew up listening to my parents tell stories and my grandparents tell stories. So it kind of was a family tradition. And then of course, mom went on to tell stories in a very professional, personal way. Right. So I really grew up with that. And then I became a storyteller too. So what were the stories about when you were growing up? What were the family stories about? Well, my grandparents told stories about the family, about Christmases and um, Easter's and different family holidays that really marked the boundaries of family. Mm. And my parents told stories about everything. My my father was a storyteller. He he told this wonderful story about being on safari and being charged by an elephant (laughs) and nearly dying because the elephant was about to pick him up in its trunk and squash him. And my mother later told me that the story was an exaggeration, which was very common in our family. And in fact, we have to this day, Um, a term for telling stories and exaggerating them. And my mother's maiden name was Harvey. So her family started out with certain exaggerations. Then she went on to magnify all the exaggerations. And then my dad had a tendency to exaggerate. So we called it Harvonian after mother's maiden name. So whenever I tell a story, my kids say, mom, that's got to be Harvonian. (laughs) So being Harvonian in my family is a big deal. So exaggerating. Exaggerating, exactly. You know, they're always really good stories and they'd probably be good stories on their own, but we just have this tendency to make them even better. For me... (laughs) Um, because I write, because I write memoir and novel, novels, uh, stories are the prime thing I'm writing about. Mother's poetry also told stories, but in a different genre. And for me, telling stories is very natural. And I tend to run on at the mouth because (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I like to tell stories and they get embellished and then my family's going, come on, hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal telling stories in our family. What were the stories about you? What were kind of like the stories that defined you or, or that were frequently told about you? Um, well, the stories that I tell tend to be anything. It can just be about an event or something that happened. It can be anything. Mm-hmm. It can be just a day-to-day thing, and I'm relating how it happened, and as I relate, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. Um, when I was a child, I think the stories about me were maybe based somewhat in truth. Um, I got sent away by my parents at a very, very early age when my mom got real sick. And she was in the mental hospital and she couldn't take care of us. So I went to my aunt's. And then when I finally came home again, months later, um, I think I was a pretty needy child. You know, I was scared of being sent away again. And um, my mother used to talk about that time as, you know, uh, a very difficult time because I was such a difficult child. And I look back on that and I wonder, you know, how much of that was also because she was a very difficult mother. Mm -hmm. Sort of a two-sided story in a way. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then she was very, um, uh, uh, she had a lot of favoritism. She played favorites. And when we were very young, she, Joy, my sister, was more beloved partially because she was an infant and infants sleep and eat and do all those things but they are not needy and clinging to your leg Mm -hmm. so and also joy was gone longer so um the stories about her were more positive um and mom wrote about all this in her journals and in her therapy. She transcribed her therapy tapes. They made tapes of each session and then she would transcribe it and learn about what had gone on in the session in a better sense. And so she talked about us and though she told stories on those, in those sessions and on those tapes which later I had to read as her literary executor. Mm. And that was really difficult. And did, how did your, I mean, your mother was so frank in her poetry and her interviews. I mean, how did your family, which was so into storytelling, respond to her honesty or her, whatever form of honesty she was using? Well, that's a complicated question. I think my dad had a lot of trouble with it. You know, he basically just found it very difficult that she wrote so frankly about the family. Mm -hmm. And she didn't write about him per se until later. And then she wrote quite viciously. So that was really hard for him to take. I found in the beginning when I identified with her as a storyteller, as a woman, all those things, I started writing when I was 11. Um, I found the story she told about me, like Little Girl, My String Bean, My Lovely Woman, which is one of her best known poems. Mm -hmm. Um, I found that to be... mm, uh, a positive, something that, you know, let me shine a little bit as a child. Instead of being the hated child, I was the beloved child. So that was a good thing until later on when she began to write quite intrusive things about me, the loss of my virginity, 
a suicide attempt, things that I felt, you know, it's one thing for her to write about her life. It was something else for her to write so baldly and boldly and with such excruciating detail and tell that those stories. I felt that was intrusive. So that that was it was hard for the family. It wasn't easy. It was different than telling um good stories or positive stories, the stories that came about in different ways. When she got to her poetry, the stories she told were steeped in honesty, but were also steeped in bald truths, mm -hmm. you know, painful truths sometimes. And, you know, her sisters really hated her poetry because she took her parents to task so much. I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, there's a oil painting of my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom. And she really wrote very negatively about them, about the things they didn't do for her. So she was telling stories that her sister sisters found very difficult to deal with because they remembered their parents an entirely different way. Mm. Was there the sense that she was exaggerating? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Exaggerating and not telling the truth. I mean, when mother said later in her life that she'd been abused by her father or that she had memories of that, but she didn't trust the memories. Were they really memories or were they fantasies? But when she wrote about that, her sisters were enraged because they felt it was a slur on their father. Hmm. So that was really, that was a hard thing. You know, she walked a really fine line between telling truths, exaggerating and you know, I don't want to say damaging, that's not the right word, but um, just saying, writing about painful truths or painful emotions, that's the word I'm looking for, painful emotions, which she felt and therefore other people took to be fact. Do you think there was some element of revenge in her bringing all this negative out? Do I think there was a limit? Is that what you asked? Of revenge, do you think? Oh, revenge. Probably to some extent. I mean, she got the last word. <laughs> she had the only word, right? Yeah, in the end, you're right. She had the only word. I mean, you, you, you had your word, but ultimately all these other people who were not writers. That's right. Did not. That's very true. They didn't get a chance to tell their stories in a public way. You know, they had their own memories of their parents in their childhood, but there was no way for them to air those memories. Right. But it, one thing, uh, you know, we talked about the other day is um, the fact that for a lot of readers, it seems as though your mother's story, her personal story, is almost more important at times than the poetry, that they relate in a way more to the story or that they uh, somehow need the story. How, how do you feel about that element of her poetry and her, her fans? I think that's a big part of it. Uh, for instance, now I'll tell a little story. <laughs> um, <laughs> when the awful rowing toward God came out, mother had just, it came, I think it came out in March of, not the year she died, the year it's of 75. She died in October 75, 74. And we were doing the jacket in, I don't know, midwinter or something, or maybe early winter. And I went in to approve the jacket, which was my right as the literary executor. I was essentially... I wasn't the author of the book, but I represented the author of the book. Right. And I went in and the art director, it was supposed to be 
a sculpture by an artist named Mariana Pineda, with whom mother had gone to the Radcliffe Institute. And it was, it was a bronze of a woman bent over who looked as if she were rowing. That was the impression you took away from it. It wasn't exact, but it was the impression you took away. Awful rowing toward God, right? So it really fit. Mother loved it. It was a piece of art. It was different than anything you would ordinarily have on a book cover, book jacket. And I went in there and the art director had replaced the bronze with a huge, a huge title and a huge representation of mom's name which I felt said sort of the author rowing toward God and Sexton suicide poet, you know, because the emphasis was on her name mm -hmm. and her name was important, but it wasn't the only thing that should be on the jacket in addition to the title. Right. Where was the artwork? Where had it gone? Right. So I protested and we got something she, she said, the art director said, it'll look like a lump of clay. So I went down and complained to the editor and he helped me to get it changed to pen and ink drawings by Barbara Swan, who did the drawings for transformations. Right. So um, it had, it had artwork on it. It wasn't just suicide poet. Um, but I had to really fight for it. Hmm. So there's a story. So that was a way in which you felt that they were gravitating towards her personal story as opposed to her yeah. works of art. Yes. And I think that's true today for a lot of the people who write to me. You know, as literary executor, I get a lot of, in addition to my own work, being literary executor, I get a lot of um, people writing and saying, you know, wonderful things about the poetry and how much it's meant to them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I get the same thing from my own work, people writing and saying, you saved my life, things like that. Um, when I wrote my memoirs, people really responded to the stories there. Um, but I think for mother, this suicide poet thing is huge and it continues to this day. You know, her work almost gets swamped by the suicide in some ways. Although many people still write about the poetry and there's enormous amount of interest from scholars who go in to look at the archives or listen to the therapy tapes. Um, I keep really good control over the therapy tapes mm -hmm. so that they're not abused because they're, of course, very personal. Um, so I think that an answer in short, see how I run on? Uh, That's what <laughs> we're here for. That's, that's the process. <laughs> a short answer is yes. I think it's looked at too much and sometimes it washes over the poetry. You know, because a lot of people write, and I tried to kill myself and your mother's books meant so much to me. Well, I'm glad they meant so much to you, but they meant so much to you for a difficult reason. Right, right. And it must be so hard for you to have people so fascinated by things that for you were so dark, you know, and so painful, you know, and yet they are kind of like exciting or, you know, stimulating or whatever for other people from a, from a distance. Yes, from a distance. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding too, because just like with Plath, um, she gets known solely for that. People forget about the work and just concentrate on the fact, oh, she was another one of those poets who killed herself. 
and uh, lose track of the work sometimes, which is sort of a follow-up to your previous question. So you were talking about your own beginning as a writer. You said you started to write when you were 11. Do you remember what pushed you to do that? What made you want to start? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Clara's day. Um, And I write about it extensively in Searching for Mercy Street, which was my first memoir. Right. Um, Basically, I became involved in mother's writing. And I would come home from school instead of going to glee club or horseback riding. Some days I would come home and um, she would say, you know, come in, I want to show, come into my study, I want to show you what I've written today. Mm. And as we went on with that, um, she began to take my criticism seriously, Mm. which was an amazing compliment, uh, an amazing, um, an amazing exercise in my brain and also the fact that she was willing to listen to me seriously developed a muscle in my mind, mm. you know? So critiquing came to me first. And then of course, I was interested in writing myself. So I started with short stories and uh, went on to poetry and I would bring it to mother and she would give me feedback. So initially I was giving her feedback. Then it was both of us giving feedback. And um, so it was a mutual, it was a mutual critiquing session. And she was very positive about what I was writing and very kind, but also very honest. So she, she walked that fine line between honesty and encouragement, which meant a great deal to me. So then I went on in college, still writing, but mother said to me right before she died, don't be a writer, Linda. I'll follow you around like an old gray ghost. Oh my gosh. How and she was right. She has. So, you know, I always get compared in a review in the New York Times. They're always saying, oh, well, the daughter isn't as good as the mother. And I write a totally different genre. She never wrote a novel. She never wrote a memoir. I've made a distinction between myself and her. I don't write poetry anymore, and I don't have any desire to do so. So, um. That was how I started, and that's basically how I'm working today. I'm able to, and I also work as an editorial consultant for people who need help with anything from coaching to editing to broad structure. And I think I took away from those early lessons where she critiqued my stories and then my poetry and the stories I was telling, because I, I had her as a role model. So I was telling the same kind of personal stories, confessional stories mm. that she was telling. She was telling them better, but it was the same line of inquiry. And today, you know, I'm able to be really good at what I do for other people. I mean, I say that with all humility, but I really learned from a master and it's made my own writing stronger as well. I think, you know, I'm able, she was big on revision over and over and over again. And that's exactly what I do over and over and over again until I can't think of any other way to change it. So, you know, I learned that from her. It was a gift she gave me. From your experience with writers, do you think that most writers have trouble editing and critiquing their own work? Oh, yeah. I think most writers do. And a lot of people just do one draft. Mm. You know, the things that come into me from people who may have some talent 
are very rough most of the time and need a lot of help. Um, and I take great pleasure in that. It, again, I use the word muscle. Mm -hmm. it's, you're using your writer's muscle to make somebody else's things better. And um, yeah, so that's an important thing to me. And I bring, I think I bring it to my own work as well. And I do do um, a blog newsletter essay every three weeks that talks about things I'm going through or feelings that I, you know, I'm experiencing, telling my stories. And that again, you know, it's a lot of work because I don't just do one draft. I do it as if I were polishing an essay for a magazine or a newspaper. And so when it's published, I feel, you know, over my uh, website, when it's published, I feel very positive and like I couldn't have done any better because I've really revised it a ton. And, and how did your... So you started when you were 11, you worked with your mother. Mm -hmm. Once you left the house, you went to college. Did you keep writing? I did. I kept writing poetry at that point. Uh, I took seminars and workshops, stuff like that. It wasn't until mom died that I stopped writing poetry. Interesting. I stopped then. Yeah. She said, don't follow, don't follow in my footsteps. I'll follow you around like an old gray ghost. And I took it, I took it for what it was worth, which meant to me, don't write poetry. Mm -hmm. But there was no way that I could not be a writer. I had to be a writer. It was who I was through and through, but I just chose to write in a different form because I didn't want to be followed around and yet it happened anyway. So it just goes to show you some things you can't escape. That was something I couldn't escape, but I don't regret it. I, I feel I love it. It's something that is integral to my being and I, you know, I just, I just love it. It makes me feel great polishing things up. I hate the first draft, but then after that, I'm really comfortable and I can super go to work. So you hate writing the first draft? I hate it. Hate getting those first words down on paper. Some people love that part of the process, but they don't tend to go back and revise right. the way I do. It's so in a way, revision is your favorite part of writing. Yes, revision is my favorite part. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about it is about writing, writing things down and polishing them up and getting them to that point that's so empowering or appealing to you? I think it's something kind of unconscious that you don't really think about per se you don't say oh well i love this and here's the reason why so much you just know that you love it and it's part of your being um i as i say i love the revising finding a better word making a better sentence making a better character if it's a novel um it it taxes me in a certain way, which I find very enlivening. Interesting. So it does, it does take something out of you, but it's a good thing. That's right. It's a good thing. It's so good. sort of fast forwarding to, you know, searching for Mercy Street, your, your first memoir about your mother, your relationship to your mother. Um, a phrase that really struck me in that book was, I'm ready to speak back. You used to say at the beginning of the book that, you know, after going through all the experience of your mother's life and death, that at the age of, I think you were 40. I was 40. Mm -hmm. You were ready to speak back. So what did that mean for you to have gotten to that point? Well, 
I have to say first off that she wrote me a letter on an airplane as she was going to a reading when I was maybe 16 or 17. Mm. And the content, we all call it the Dear Linda letter because it's the most popular letter she ever wrote and gets quoted the most and anthologized the most because it's, it's just an incredibly moving letter. Mm -hmm. um, in that letter, she said that she had wanted to be able to talk to her own mother, but that it was too late. And um, I got to searching for Mercy Street and it, it was too late. But mm. through my words, because I was able to, you know, really dig deep with that book, I felt like I was able to say to her, this is how I feel now about the job you did as a mother. And the book is really one of forgiveness. That's what that book is about. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I was ready to tell her who I was, how I felt about her. And so to me, that was speaking back. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, talking back as in a child would do. It right. was speaking back to the things she had written in that letter and saying, you know, just like you were with your mother, um, unable to voice your feelings. Voice is really the word. Mm. Here I am and I'm ready finally to voice my feelings and my emotions. So that's what that meant to me. And what was the reception to that book? I mean, how did it, did it have the kind of effect that you wanted or? Yeah, I got such praise for that book in every possible way from reviews to to people writing to me and saying, you've made my relationship with my mother and even with my father um, more understandable, better. I'm more able to forgive mm -hmm. and let go because in forgiveness, there's letting go, there's acceptance. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, I was very, very fortunate that people saw what I was trying to get at. Yeah, so the reception was great in answer to your question. Definitely the book of mine that is the most read. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I, I forgot about this, but I actually ran into you in a restaurant at about the time the book came out. And I, I recognized you from the cover picture because I was reading it at the time. And I, I just walked up to you and said, are you Linda Sexton? And uh, you, I think you were so shocked to be recognized. <laughs> I was. No one ever recognized me. I was like, oh, I'm just reading your book. I think it's great. And that was it. But, well, uh, that's so nice. Thank you for doing something that gave me such pleasure. I was actually meeting one of my writing teachers who was a writer at the Times, New York Times. And uh, so... We had lunch in the same restaurant <laughs> that day, you whatever know, year that was. That whatever year, maybe it was the year the book came out. It was, it was. It was definitely the year the book came out. Yeah. Well, I have a funny story that sort of fits with that, but isn't that. And if I told it, my family would say, you're being Harvonian, but it's really <laughs> the truth. I was in a restaurant and there was a man sitting beside me who kept glancing my way. And I thought he was trying to pick me up. Uh -huh. And he picked my pocket. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was not me. I had, no <laughs> I had no way to get home. I had no license. I had nothing. Was that in New York? It was really bad. No, it was in Boston. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's a funny story in retrospect. So your other memoir, um, which we also talked a little about, um, is a much more difficult one. Half in Love. Half in Love. You're talking yeah. about Half in Love? Yeah, no, much more difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how did you get to the point? Um, I know this is such a difficult subject, but, you know, having seen everything that your mother went through, how did you get to the point that you were also so, uh, so sick, so unhappy? And it seems like something that you wouldn't allow yourself to go there because you had watched her decline, you know? Do you remember how that happened? Well, yeah. Um, I certainly never intended to go there. I mean, to me, that was just a forbidden place to go. Mm. And to find myself there was, it felt just tragic. You know, here I am in exactly the same place, feeling suicidal, acting out on that. When I had kids, um, you know, just the feelings of self-loathing were enormous. Um, I went through a 10-year period wherein um, I struggled with therapy and with medication. And eventually, I had bipolar disorder. Eventually, we found a combo that worked. And I began to come out of it. And as I came out of it and got less suicidal, which I really feel was a legacy handed down to me. I mean, it, you know, it really passes through families. So um, I began to get better. And as I began to get better, I wanted to chronicle what had happened to me and how I managed to get better because the book is not just about my suicide attempts, which reach hundreds of people who all say, you saved my life with this book, or they don't all say that. See, that's Harbonian. Um, <laughs> they don't all say it, but a large number of people will say things like you saved my life. Sure. And so I had wanted to write about it naturally because I'm a storyteller and this was something really, really terrible that had happened to me. And yet there were lessons to be learned mm -hmm. and people to be touched. Not only people who were suicidal, but the families of people who were suicidal, the friends of people who were suicidal all of whom wrote to me very supportive letters uh, or emails. I always say letters, but I <laughs> myself. Right. So I started getting better. I started writing and um, it just progressed, but it took me years to actually get to a place where I was finished, you know, where I felt I had gotten as much out of it as I could. I had rewritten it a million times, chapter by chapter. Some things overlapped. I had to go back and go, wait a minute, didn't I say this already? Cut this one out because it was written over such a long period of time that it was easy to write the same things multiple times. So anyway, I got it finished with the help of a fabulous editor and, you know, I published it and then people wrote to me and I can't say it's my most popular book. I think because it's dark, mm -hmm. people are scared of it, but people who have suicide in their families or people who are suicidal see it as kind of a guidebook to getting well. How did that did writing that book and going through that change how you viewed your mother and her struggles? Yeah, sure did. Um, you know, in Searching for Mercy Street, I wrote about 
forgiving her for the kind of mother she'd been. I had my own children then, and I understood what she was going through in a far greater sense. When it got to half in love, I had to deal for the first time on a deep psychological level with her suicide and the ways in which we were similar, which, you know, was a blow because I didn't want to be similar in this way. Mm. I wanted to be healthy and put together and be a great mom for my children. And I wasn't a good mom for my children during those years, which kills me. You know, it really upsets me that I was not able to be there for them in the beginning of their teenage years. Mm. But that's the truth of it. And in the, in the long run, I want to write the truth of it. Just the way mom wanted to write the truth of it with her poetry, I want to do it, but in a different form. That's all. Otherwise, it's the same. It's very beautiful. Um, and you mentioned a couple of times that you were your mom's executor. Mm -hmm. And that must be a huge responsibility. Uh, yeah, it's over, and it continues. You would think, oh, well, the beginning of it naturally, there was a lot to do, but it really continues. You know, she's translated into probably 30 languages by now. I deal with four or five permissions requests a week. Mm -hmm. There are scholars who want to use the archives of Texas. There are scholars who want to use the tapes. There's just been a new biography written by a woman in England that's wonderful. It's, hmm. it's about Plath and Sexton. Oh, wow. And not comparing them in the way they're usually compared at all. It's a very different sort of work. And I had to, I didn't have to give permission. She had the right to write it but I had to give permission for her to quote in certain places. And she approached me, it was wonderful. She approached me saying, I don't wanna do anything to hurt the family. Please let me know if there's anything in here you find objectionable. Mm -hmm. There were very few things that I asked her to change, almost nothing. And that was in contrast to a book which came out last year which was more like a biography of her years at the radcliffe institute hmm. and when i said to the the author you know you need to get permission from me to use these unpu unpublished materials she refused and would not allow me to look at the manuscript and you know, uh, it was it was a terrible, terrible um, impasse that we came to. And so she finally just quoted around things, paraphrased things as a way of getting around quoting directly, which, you know, isn't right. She she uh, she just wouldn't cooperate is the word, whereas the woman in England had a whole different attitude. And frankly, the times I've tried to control what people are writing are, you know, minuscule because I see a journalist's need to express their own opinion and I value that. It's only if there's something gratuitously invasive to the family that I would ask it be modified. I would never ask it to be deleted. I very often, I think they have the wrong story. We're back to story again. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to help them see another viewpoint, particularly with regard to my dad, because it was such a complicated relationship that I feel every once in a while, someone will get it just a little bit off. So I, ha I have to at least offer a different viewpoint. And if they take it, great. And if they don't take it, that's their privilege. But it's my privilege to say, you know, you, you, these are unpublished materials and you, you know, you can't 
you can't quote from them. But what's it like to um, sort of be involved? I mean, you're still so involved with your mom's work and, and I don't know if you agreed to be her executor. Uh, you, you must have been a teenager when it, when it happened. Um, and here you're still doing it, you know, 40 years later. Yeah. Well, once again, there's a story. Are you sick of my stories yet? On my 21st birthday, I was out at the house. I had gone to college, obviously. I was home for the summer. It was my 21st birthday. And she said, come into the, I was out by the pool. Come into the house. I want to talk to you about something. Mm -hmm. So I came in. We sat down in her study, which had been the, you know, the place we engaged so often over the poetry or the stories or whatever. Um, in such a positive way. And she dumped this uh, document in my lap that said she was appointing me her literary executor. I was only 21. What did I know about this? Nothing. Yes. So I said to her, I didn't, I really didn't think I was the person. Why didn't she ask Maxine Kuhlman or another scholar, Sandy McClatchy, who was at Yale then, and I thought she should really reconsider this because I wasn't qualified. And she explained to me that it's better to have someone within the family do this so there, there's no blowback from the family itself. Right. And so anyway, I was also a little complimented that she wanted me to do this. It was, you know, something of an honor um, and it ushered me into the world of literary adults. So that was, you know, a plus. I didn't like trading on her name, so I tried to avoid that, but it was almost hard to avoid. You know, people saw me as Ann Sexton's gone, but Linda Sexton is still here. Let's talk to Linda Sexton instead. So that's when I started, when I was 21, with all these big decisions, like what was going to go on the jacket of the awful rowing toward God and which poems were going to be deleted out of the death notebooks because they were too painful for family, but then making sure that the original manuscript was at the University of Texas, which is where her archive is, mm -hmm. so that scholars would see exactly what she had done, even though, you know, it was, I felt it was inappropriate with my dad still alive to publish these really vicious, vicious poems. Mm -hmm. So that the editor and I came to that solution and some people didn't like that solution. Mm -hmm. You know, some people thought it should have been published exactly as it was written and my feeling was, let's take out three or four. They'll be preserved. Anybody can look at them. I'm not putting them under restriction. Right. And, you know, so that's how I dealt with it. And yes, I'm still doing it with all these various, various things that come my way. And, you know, I think it's one of the best um, things that I've, ever done oh, you know, I, I have very positive feelings in the beginning i kind of resented it mm. because it was so much work and it took me away from my own work but now i feel that i do a great job at it a better job than anybody else would have done and so i feel very positively about it mm -hmm. so you talked a little about your your editorial work what uh, what other things are you working on right now? Besides the editorial work, mm -hmm. you mean? I'm working, <laughs> I'm working on the fourth memoir. Oh, really? Yeah. This time it's about being mom's literary executor oh. and the ways in which I grew through that process and the stories that go along with... Um, hmm doing that work because there are a lot of stories 
that go along with it. You know, just like I told you the story of those two biographies, there are a lot of very interesting stories about the work I did and continue to do. But, you know, I'm writing about, it's a memoir, so I'm writing about the past mostly and then something about the future and where I see, you know, scholars having a huge role in promoting her, continuing to promote her work. Um, so she doesn't get lost. Uh, it seems like you really, you know, there's kind of a focus on service in a way in, in the topics you choose. Like you, you did a service for people who, you know, may be suicidal. Now I think we, this book you're writing is really going to be a huge help for people who are dealing with this executor responsibility, you know? Yeah. And I think too... It's about the responsibilities we hold for our families. That's another, it's not, it's not only about being a literary executor or being an executor, though it is very much about that. It's also about the ways in which we, after a family member is gone, um, the memories live on, which sounds kind of, Plebeian, but we do carry those things forward. And um, we have response. I had responsibilities to mom, which I think is something a lot of people can relate to mm-hmm. um, as they deal with their feelings. Because a lot of people have negative feelings or feel put upon by their memories. Mm-hmm. So this is an example of something different. Well, listen, I'm really so grateful for your time and for your sharing all of this very personal history and uh, sharing your your career as a writer with us. And if if people want to learn more about your writing, where should they go? Linda Gray, with an A, Sexton, lindagraysexton.com. That's my website, and it has all my books on it, all my articles on it, all my reviews, everything you could want to know about me. Uh Uh-huh. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Uh, Thank you. Very much. Great questions. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. (laughs) 